Welcome to the podcast that seeks out the elite, the best of the best, the top 1% of 80s and 90s popular culture. Its purpose? To teach the lost art of audio, biblio, televisual, and cinematic excellence to a select (laughs) handful of podcast subscribers and ensure that they learn to identify the friendlies, i.e. Seinfeld and Twister, from the enemy, i.e. Family Matters, and she's all that. (laughs) There are no points for second place. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Moulin Rouge. You think you got what it takes to be a Jurassic Park? We'll see about that. Oh, you think that's funny, Ace Ventura? Your ass is going to be grass after we're finished with you. Today, the United States government calls it Pop Culture Weapons School. The hosts call it When We Were Young. I'm Chris, call sign Godspeed. The podcast host whose ego is writing checks his body can't cash. Talk to me, Bort. I'm Becky, call sign Bort. The podcast host most likely to swoon when a man I've never met before scream shouts, you've lost that love and feeling in my face and gets everyone else in the bar to join in. Is that a 10-4? That's a 10-4, good buddy. This is Seth, call sign Overthinker. And I'm the host most likely to want some butts. Guys, I got a bogey on me. He's right on my tail. He's really riding me. Can't seem to shake him. He's all over me. He's on top of me. I mean, Chris, that's usually what you say you want, so I wasn't going to intervene there. Uh, it's just Tom Cruise, so I guess engage. Oh, sure, sure. In this episode, we are heading into Twilight, spreading out our wings tonight. Jumping off the deck, shoving into overdrive, and taking you right into the danger zone of Reagan-era jingoism and mid-80s machismo. I know I promised we were only going close to the danger zone, but no, we are going right in. (laughs) As we head into the chilly winter months, we thought our listeners might enjoy a nice, lovely cruise. (laughs) Oh my god, the puns. I was ready. I was ready with the, are you ready to set sail on a Tom Cruise? (laughs) We'll be taking you on several cruises over the next couple of episodes, in fact. We have talked about Tom Cruise on the podcast before, once in our episode on the 1988 Best Picture winner Rain Man, and again when we discussed 1999's sensationally sprawling Opus Magnolia. And he uh, he sang Colors of the Wind, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Was that him? Was that in Rain Man or was that in <laughs> I Magnolia? <don't> know. <laughs> and I think in both of those movies, we came away impressed by Tom Cruise's acting chops um, in particular. But neither of those is a typical Tom Cruise performance. Um, They're both a little out of sync with his um, persona because he is a total asshole in those films. (laughs) Um, So today we're looking at more quintessential Tom Cruise, uh, the toothy grin, the cocky charm, the run. Still a little bit of an asshole. (laughs) A little bit, but like a smiling asshole. Yeah, it's the toothy, cocky, runny asshole. That's the one we like. Not, not the bad mood asshole. The good, no. He's in a good mood, but he's an asshole. Yeah. No hair extensions. These are the ones we like. So these will be the roles that define him as a movie star in the 80s and 90s. Heyday, as a swoon-worthy romantic leading man, and a hotshot performing death-defying stunts. We're examining two of the biggest years in Tom Cruise's career, and that's saying something since for a couple decades... Almost every year was a big year in Tom Cruise's (laughs) career. So our next episode takes us to 1996, the year that Cruise started Mission Impossible as Ethan Hunt, a role that he is still playing 25 years later and counting. 
and in Jerry Maguire as Jerry Maguire. It was an acclaimed romantic sports drama that racked up five Academy Award nominations and was also a monster hit with critics and audiences. But first, in this episode, we are flashing one more decade back to 1986 for the 35th anniversary of a little film called Top Gun, the romantic action drama starring Cruz as a Maverick fighter pilot named Maverick, who doesn't like to play by the rules, like all of his characters. It was also the year that Ridley Scott's fantasy bomb Legend opened in the United States just one month before Top Gun. And the year that Cruz starred opposite Paul Newman as a pool hall hustler in Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money, which went on to be nominated for four Oscars itself, winning one. So Top Gun is arguably the defining role of Tom Cruise's career. I would argue that. Okay, that's why that's why I threw in an argue, and we will we will argue. It was a box office smash, cementing Tom Cruise as Hollywood's go-to leading man of the late 20th century. It also launched a hit soundtrack that went 12 times platinum, and went on to become one of the most iconic action films of all time, and one of the most emblematic films of the 80s. When you think 80s movies, I don't think you can think of many more 80s-ish movies than Top Gun, but I don't know, maybe we can talk about that too. It's but, up there. But that was then, and this is now, so can Top Gun still do a 4G inverted dive with a MiG-28? At a one and a half meter range, is that a good thing? <laughs> I don't know what you just said. No, literally, somebody, anyone, tell us. We don't know. Or when examined through a modern lens, will the ultimate Tom Cruise vehicle crash and burn? Godspeed, over and out. That's right, everyone. Strap in for when we were youngs. You had me at hello, goose. I'm Maverick, a Tom Cruise. Oh my god. <laughs> We didn't sign off on this before recording. You never have to, because it's always the title. That was a crash and burn. <laughs> Jumping back in the DeLorean a Saturday morning, because we both be cynical and radical. But was it good because we were young? Was it good because we were dumb? Did we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up. And there was so much that we loved. Do we think it'll make the cut? Well, our listeners can't see this, but you guys look a little winded. How dare you, first of all. It seems as if something has taken your breath away. (laughs) That pun did. (laughs) In the spirit of that gorgeous ballad, which won Top Gun its Oscar for Best Original Song, I would like to know what, when you were young, was or would have been your romantic ballad? What would be the take my breath away of your youth? I thought you were going to ask us what takes our breath away (laughs) when we were young. (laughs) If you would also like to let us know what got you revved up and into the danger zone, feel free to do a a high and a low energy song. I didn't have romance when I was young. (laughs) This is a hard one. That's why we're doing a podcast now. Because all we did was watch movies. The only thing I can think of is like those Disney ballads. (laughs) Like, I I don't know. When I was young, I didn't... Romance wasn't a thing. Well, like I mean, a teenager, I, did you have, like, any, like, song that, you no. know, like, with a boyfriend or anything? No, we didn't have a song that I can recall. I don't think we had the same taste in music. <laughs> the only person that I that I dated in high school. Uh, this is a toughie. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is coming to oh, no. Um, There is a song on the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. <laughs> As romantic as it gets. Bob Dylan, I believe. You belong to me? It's on the Natural War Killer soundtrack. 
plays during a scene in the movie where she's visiting Mickey in jail and she's jerking him off on her table but they miss each other so much and the song is playing and I always found it very romantic. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. That's That was probably, that's my answer. <laughs> okay, so was there a song that got you revved up then? Like what was your, not like sexually, but you know, just like, like I'm going to school. I don't know, because where else do you go when you're a kid? Where am I going? I don't to know. school? What, what kind adventures did you think I had as a child? school dance, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Probably something from a musical, let's be honest. I mean, I'm sorry to disappoint. I think for the most part, my answers are also the Disney songs. (laughs) (laughs) Not just the Disney songs, but to me, to my tiny forming brain, somewhere out there was an incredibly romantic ballad. Mm about, like, the original missed connections. Between a brother and a sister, right? Isn't that what it is? I was an only child, so that math didn't enter my mind at the time. The kind of longing expressed in that ballad was very much something that I connected to. I didn't really have any kind of romance as a kid. I don't really think in retrospect that I had a lot of models for very romantic love, especially the kind of romantic love that would be matched to particular songs. You know, like, I don't think I knew any married or dating couples growing up who, like, had a song that was their song either. So that kind of, like, ritualistic picking of a song that, like, is the kind of emblem for someone's relationship wasn't really a thing that entered my view, except for, like, when it was done in movies and stuff like that. And then I would also say, like, Beauty and the Beast was kind of a romantic song, at least, like, whatever small way I understood romance. The Mrs. Potts version or the Peebo version? (laughs) We're gonna go with Peebo. Peebo. It's gonna be Peebo. Like, a hundred times out of a hundred. Again, no shade on Mrs. Potts. She's great. She's no Celine Dion. (laughs) Just in terms of any songs that would kind of come up in my daily life, really the only context my brain is going to right now would be like school dances and any romantic song that would be played, any romantic song that they would play at school dances would be like the saddest song I'd ever heard because I would spend the whole dance on the wall just staring at people having fun. Because I know that our childhood was a heyday for romantic R&B slow jam ballads. Oh yes, we heard many of them in our 90s number one singles. Oh yeah, and like I Swear by All For One and like, yeah, there were so, so many of them, but 
just none of them ever had any kind of connection for me to either my particular feelings for any person or to my kind of imagination for what romance and love look like. Um, it's a really interesting question, though, Chris, and I, I'm very curious, like, what your own answers are here. Can you feel the love tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Of course. That wasn't the first thing that came to mind, but I did realize that that did fill that void... Like, that did feel like a romantic song at the time. Like Absolutely. Like, in elementary school. You know, it's not a particularly romantic time, at least for me it wasn't, you know. But if I were to have a romantic ballad at that point, it would have been. <laughs> it would have been that one. <laughs> the one that came to mind for later, because like you guys, I wasn't the type of person who had, like, a romantic song, especially with someone else, and wasn't particularly into real romantic ballads, like the stuff that would be played on the radio by like Celine Dion or Whitney Houston or anything like that but like more of like the sad version so like Glycerine by Bush is the song that came to mind for me because it was like it was more of a like longing song like I remember Mm -hmm. like having a crush on someone and like listening to that song and like watching them and being like that's not romantic that's sad yeah well like unrequited love that's uh, <laughs> Becky, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the love that's not given back is still a form of love. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and if you think differently, talk to my psychiatrist. <laughs> Just kidding, I don't have one. Maybe you should get one. <laughs> should probably get one. <laughs> yeah, we should pause this episode now and get some mental help. I will be right back, you guys. <laughs> And I think my version of, like, Danger Zone would have been, like, Filter and Stone Temple Pilots. Like, there's a lot of, like, badass kind of sounding songs that I like, you know, like, heavy, lots of drums and guitars, so. Yes, I loved Filter, especially. I was really into Filter. And yeah, like, as far as, like, get up and go music, it would be, like, Filter or Alanis Morissette's You Wanna Know. That'll always get me going. It's a good selection. Yeah. Thomas Cruz Mapather IV <laughs> was born on the 3rd of July, 1962, in Syracuse, New York. So close. I know. 
He should have just changed it for the movie. <laughs> his birthday? <laughs> he should have changed Independence Day. <laughs> they should have changed his birthday or they should have changed the title the of the title movie. The title of the movie, Born on the 3rd of July. <laughs> it's close the, enough. That's the prequel. <laughs> then the sequel's Born on the 4th of July. <laughs> Is all the information. That is all. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Scientology has burned the rest of his records. He was born to a stay-at-home mom and a father who was an engineer and inventor. He spent his childhood hanging off the tops of the tallest trees, flipping off roofs into snowbanks, building ramps to jump over garbage cans on his motorbike at the age of 12. I cannot picture him that young. Really? Can't picture really? it. Can't picture it. I picture him being literally identical to what he is now, just slightly <laughs> smaller. Can't picture it. Yeah. I don't know. He's so youthful in a lot of these older movies that I feel like it's easy to picture what he was like. And also, it's like, Chris, as you ticked each of those off, I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds exactly like what Tom Cruise's childhood would have been. <laughs> oh, my God. Important update. He's adorable as a child. <laughs> we have just we looked just, him up. We Googled it. Crucial update that we will post along with this episode. Oh, he's got janky teeth. <laughs> it's cute. <laughs> he looks exactly the same besides the yeah. teeth. Yeah. Yeah. His family moved a lot. Cruz changed schools 15 times in 12 years. Wow. Wow. He was 12 years old when his father abandoned his family and refused to pay child support. So he took out his aggression playing sports, fighting, and getting suspended. He got good at pretty much every sport because he moved so much that it was, like, the best way to meet people in Newtown. So he just, like, picked up whatever sport was popular at his new school. Cool. So he became good at everything. (laughs) When he was 17, a wrestling injury sidelined him from sports. So he went after the next best thing to athletics, auditioning for his first musical and winning the lead in Guys and Dolls. Was he Nathan Detroit or Sky Masterson? I'm going to guess Sky Masterson because that's the Brando role. He seems like he would do the Brando role. Mm, That may be right. That may be right. Scientology has destroyed that information. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They burned all the playbills. (laughs) Right after opening night, he asked his mother and stepfather for their blessing to pursue an acting career. Like literally that night (laughs) in his first musical. He said he was giving himself 10 years. And if he wasn't successful by then, he'd give up and do something else. He did not need 10 years. (laughs) He moved to New York City immediately upon graduating high school, and he did a brief period of actorly struggle, being rejected from the TV pilot for fame because he was not pretty enough, according to the casting director. But he soon won a 47-second role as a shirtless teen arsonist in the 1981 Brooke Shields romance Endless Love, which then led him to a supporting role in the film Taps, released the same year. He was cast as the sidekick to a villain character at a military school. But Tom Cruise overcommitted to the role. He shaved his head, packed on muscle, to the extent that he was recast as the villain role instead of the sidekick. (laughs) Wow. Again, that just absolutely checks out with everything I've ever heard about him. Here he is in Endless Love. He is a shirtless... Oh, he is a shirtless arsonist. He can light this on fire and burn it to the ground, baby. (laughs) So Tom Cruise found himself typecast early in his career as the psychopathic bad guy type. Typecast in his early career or in every movie he's ever been in? Well, as like a, he's not like a villain type. Like this was like more like really eccentric, like menacing people. This sounds almost like Gary Busey-ish. Yes. Like, like a young Gary Busey. Yeah. Because in, in Taps, he played this character who shoots up his high school, um, a military oh, school. So he got offered a ton of roles in horror movies and as like young villain types. Oh. So to avoid getting trapped in that niche as like, you know, obviously the villain isn't the star. He wanted to take the first leading role he got 
offered, and that was in 1983's teen sex comedy Losing It, mm-hmm. which was not a hit, and <laughs> was not a hit really in any way, um, either commercially or with critics or with Tom Cruise himself. Uh, he fired his agent after that and signed with Paula Wagner at CAA um, and took a small role in Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders next because he wanted to work with a director who he knew was a legend. And he went on to continue doing that. He's worked with Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick, Oliver Stone, Ridley Scott, Paul Thomas Anderson, Michael Mann, Brian De Palma, Barry Levinson, and a lot of other big names. So he's definitely like followed that formula pretty much ever since he set his sights on Coppola. And that's so interesting because like Cruz and Wagner, like I th- I think they've been producing partners yes. on everything they've done forever. Mm-hmm. So like I've seen that name alongside Tom Cruise's name forever, and it's really interesting to like learn that they went that far back with each other. That's pretty cool. Yeah, she was his agent back then, but yeah, eventually yeah. that became like an even more like collaborative relationship. Tom Cruise's big break was in 1983's Risky Business. He played a teenager who runs a brothel out of his suburban home while his parents are on vacation. He improvised his own dance moves in the scene that remains one of the most famous scenes of all time, as well as a very popular Halloween costume for the lazy. (laughs) Dancing to old-time rock and roll in his underwear and a shirt and sunglasses. He had four films released in 1983. Uh, Following Losing It, he had The Outsiders and Risky Business, and then the football drama All the Right Moves. Tom Cruise was hailed as a heartthrob after Risky Business and All the Right Moves, but already he was very much wanting to be in control of his image and his career. He wanted to be taken seriously as an actor, so he stopped doing publicity and went off to London to work with Ridley Scott. He was out of the limelight and the Hollywood scene for about a year, unlike a lot of his peers and like the Brat Pack at the time who were soaking up a bunch of publicity as mm. he pretty much stayed out of it. Oh, yeah. That movie, The Outsiders, like launched a bunch of different careers. Patrick Swayze. Is that Estevez? Yeah. Yeah. Emilio Estevez. Uh, Matt Dillon and lots of baby faced men. <laughs> Some Corys. I believe there's... At, <laughs> Ralph Macchio is in that too, right? I think there's so. A, and there's at least one Cory. Yeah. That was a law in the 80s, is that you had to have one Cory in your movie. Oh, yeah. It was a legal, one. a mandatory Cory minimum. <laughs> so Tom Cruise starred in just one film before going from his breakout roles in Risky Business and All the Right Moves to worldwide stardom in Top Gun. And that was in Ridley Scott's Legend in which he plays Jack of the Green, a green man of the forest who fights to rescue princesses and unicorns from the Lord of Darkness and his goblin minions. I'm sad I have not watched this yet. I yeah, feel like I'm I sad I feel too, like I need honestly. to. Come to me. You see why? this tender morsel. Disturbing red to my dress. Jack, they call me Jack, ma'am. Oh! What a fine fat boy you are, Jack! You don't really mean to eat me, do you, ma'am? Oh, indeed I do! Excuse <laughs> me, that would be a shame because someone as fair and lovely as yourself, Miss Meg. Deserves far better than scrawny me. It, I watched it recently, and I had originally seen it in the cemetery, like, for the Hollywood Forever screenings. They show movies projected on a wall, and you go and, and 
and drink wine and with friends. And so this was a night where they did like a triple feature. And I think this might have been the third film. So I had had some wine. (laughs) 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 And it was very late and it was cold. So my memory of the movie was very hazy. And I was like, oh, like that movie, I I can't figure out what it was actually about. So I watched it again more recently, years (laughs) later. And it wasn't my fault. It wasn't the wine. (laughs) The movie makes no sense. It's just fantasy like mumbo jumbo and it's so beautifully made like it you know ridley scott is a great visual stylist and especially this was right after he had done blade runner so he Mm. was really like putting the work in at this point in his career and the movie is just like nonsense i'm very curious to watch it because i I know that i've seen i know that i've seen screenshots of it and i was i loved willow which for i don't know what reason has always kind of been paired with the movie legend in my life double feature seth yeah willow legend um, and I I love many of Ridley Scott's biggest, best, most successful movies, movies, but he Ridley Scott's also had some massive, massive bombs. And this was one of them. This, this was, was not a hit. It has Tim Curry, and he has like a really cool like villain character, which is kind of the only reason to watch it. And Tom Cruise, like his big issue with this movie was like, he was like, I don't think I needed to be in that. Like that could have been anyone. And he's kind of right. Like the role is just kind of a nothing role. Hmm. But it was a different experience for him, at least. The movie was released in 1985 in the United Kingdom, but in the US, not until 1986. And yeah, like I said, the movie was not a hit. It was a rough go. Cruise pretty much disappeared from the, you know, any kind of publicity for the movie. So luckily he only had one month to live in that shame because <laughs> then Top Gun opened and Top Gun was Top Gun. <laughs> Care to clarify? <laughs> no. Nope. I will indeed. I will elaborate no further. Top Gun was produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, who had just produced two other super successful and iconic 80s films, Flashdance in 1983 and Beverly Hills Cop in 1984. Bruckheimer did both those? Wow. And again, like, when I talk about, like, two other movie titles that are just the epitome of the 80s, holy shit. They knew what they were doing, yeah. and what they were doing was the 80s. So at this point in their career, they were driving around L.A. in matching Ferraris. Wait, who was matching? <laughs> Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, okay. who were the partners. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> that created this whole thing called the 1980s, basically. Fun fact, the Ferraris were themselves made of cocaine. <laughs> Probably. So the producers read an article called Top Guns in California Magazine. It was about hotshot Navy pilots, and they immediately wanted to make it into a movie starring Tom Cruise. So they knew right off the bat, they're like, Tom Cruise is our man. Mm -hmm. He was that big? He wasn't like that big. He was just the new up and coming thing. But they basically figured, like Flash Ants, they could make a star out of someone Mm. like they did with Jennifer Beals. So it was more about like capturing like who was like the hot young thing and then like putting him in a vehicle that would make him a movie star. It worked. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, guys. (laughs) So the producers met with the real pilots in Miramar, California, who they thought looked and acted exactly like Tom Cruise. And they also chose a director who was not yet proven at the box office, Tony Scott, brother of Ridley, who Tom had just worked with on Legend. He had made only one film, 1983's The Hunger, about vampires, but he had also shot a TV commercial where a Saab raced a jet, so he was hired. (laughs) Wow. That's all they needed. That's also wild to think about. (laughs) 
It's interesting that they <laughs> these God. guys these producers like knew what they wanted so much and at this point had so much clout that they could because a lot of times a producer would love to do something like this but a studio is like no you need someone who's proven this yes, or that I, I mean those are two big risks independent of each other but also together <laughs> I think we're thinking of it like it's going to be the biggest thing ever like the net like the new Harry Potter movie or the new Mission Impossible but like back then. It may have been a disposable movie, but it turned out it wasn't. Well, but I mean, it's you can say that, but it's it's no small feat to ask to make a, make a feature film about fighter pilots. You know, it's like that's a concept and a pitch that in and of itself demands a certain level of craft and believability. I was going to say know? that was probably the pitch is just like, oh, we don't really care. Who cares who the star and director is? It's all about the fighter, the, the pilots and the, it could and the planes. It could be. Well, yeah, but it, it is, like, there, there's no, like, indie version of Top Gun. Right. You can't be like, oh, well, we'll cut back on the planes, you it's know? It's just a tiny little character drama about some lesbian planes on a ranch in Montana. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. No? So it wasn't expected to be, like, the biggest hit in the world. It was a surprise when it was as big as it was. But it obviously had to be a certain scale to justify, like, paying for planes to fly around a lot. <laughs> That's expensive. In case you were not aware. The script was written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr., a duo who also wrote Turner and Hooch, Dick Tracy, and Anaconda. The first draft of the script had Maverick romancing a bimbo gymnast. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is that a technical term? The phrase bimbo gymnast. Well, it's actually supposed to be bimnist, but <laughs> I wanted to make sure our listeners were familiar with this 80s term. Bimnist is my call sign. <laughs> And the original draft had crews worried that this was just flash dance in the sky, which it probably was. So even before the movie's release, Top Gun is where we first start seeing Tom Cruise being super Tom Cruisey. <laughs> he refused to sign on unless he got the chance to rework the script himself. So he spent a couple months driving back and forth to the real Top Gun school in Miramar, doing research and flying in F-14s. His first time in the air, he threw up. But he eventually earned his flight certification and broke the sound barrier. When Tony Scott later filmed shots of the rest of the cast going up in the planes, the takes became unusable because everyone else threw up in the planes <laughs> at the cameras. And Tom Cruise was the only one who didn't. Aww. So his hard work pays off is, is the moral of the Tom Cruise story. Cruise also argued with the producers about his shirtless locker room scenes and the beach volleyball moment. Bruckheimer and Simpson's argument was that they had hired Tom Cruise, and that was for a reason. They wanted women to go see this movie, but Tom Cruise did not want to be seen as just a beefcake, so he agreed to do the scenes, but banned photographers from taking any shots of the locker room or volleyball scenes. Like for publicity? Like, yeah, he mm. banned photographers from the set, basically, for those mm. scenes. He insisted on approval of all publicity shots and made sure that they all promoted his all-American look and had him in front of, like, American flags and in, in jets and such stuff. such a question already of, like, he has such confidence already, and, like, why aren't they just being like, no? <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> you know, like, he, it's, it's like he's already Tom Cruise. Yeah, I mean, he really did act the part before he had the part in terms of being a star. Like, he fired agents early on, refused yeah. to do certain types of projects, was very controlling over his image, and knew exactly what 
kind of image he wanted and at most would do the wrong thing once like losing it he did you know for the wrong reasons because he was like oh i need a starring role like let me do this dumb teen sex comedy and then he did it and he was like nope not gonna do that again and worked with inexperienced directors like a couple times and then was like nope i'm only working with the top directors i mean nice to be choosy yeah (laughs) good for him i guess well (laughs) it's also interesting to me Because just from my professional experience, I worked for a decade and a half in a role where I got to visit a lot of studios' photo archives and look at a lot of studios, like their full boxes of all the original stills that were taken for these movies. And there are definitely some actors for whom, you know, they'll tell you right off the bat that they didn't allow photographers in this one sequence that's the most iconic thing, that's the one thing you're looking for photos from. Um, or uh, that, you know, if you want to use this photo that you've already seen literally everywhere and that you can get even in super high resolution on the internet, you need their personal, like, written approval to, mm. to use it. Um, so, Becky, it's it's not just, that's not just your suspicion. It's crazy that he was able to exercise especially that much control over his literal image and over, like, the documenting documenting of his movie shoot um, at that time. Um, and it's surprising that it's surprising that that wasn't held against him. I think it's a combination of luck, for one thing, and being privileged in certain ways, but also people falling for his charisma. Like Tom Cruise is a hard person to say no to. I think, like even probably before he was the big star, is like I think he always had that kind of charm and charisma that you just kind of want to be like, all right, Tom, we'll we'll do it your way, like. Oh. Absolutely. And not just that, but again, it's like even from just these kind of anecdotes that you've broken out so far, Chris, like Tom Cruise is a guy who does have like some very good insight as to like what would make a movie better and like how he can best do his thing in a movie. And he's got that perspective at a surprisingly young age and surprisingly early point in his career. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like his contributions to the script of Top Gun probably were a lot better than what was originally in there. And yeah, he was really savvy. Like, he decided that, like, if you want to see, like, the Tom Cruise sex appeal, he'll do it. But, like, you have to buy a ticket and go to the movie to see it. You don't get to see it in the publicity stills. And so he separated the sort of sex appealness from, like, the image that he was using to promote the film in a pretty interesting way, in a pretty savvy way for someone who was at the this time about 23 i believe yeah and it's like those aren't those aren't the pivotal moments of that movie but they i feel like they absolutely would have dominated everything else about that movie if those had been photos that were out at the time like, I yeah, don't you think can, he's wrong. You can easily see the movie being promoted as, like, ooh, like, studs playing beach volleyball instead. And that might have, like, really affected, like, the kind of people who saw the movie and how much of a mm-hmm. hit it was. He was also super committed to the making of the film, kind of like Seth was just saying. is like, he called a lot of meetings with, like, fellow actors and worked through their characters with them as well. Like, he was basically acting the role of a producer even before he was a producer. He also avoided most of his co-stars besides um, Anthony Edwards because he wanted to build up the friendly rapport with him. Val Kilmer and him had kind of a rivalry on set that was inspired, they both say, by wanting to like make the movie better, you know, like having that be real. But they were kind of mean to, or standoffish and Val Kilmer was doing a lot of things that like Iceman would have done to Maverick. Also, he didn't really spend any time with Kelly McGillis because he wanted their scenes to feel like he was approaching her for the first time. So 
He was, in a way, like methody, in a way that I don't think we think of Tom Cruise as a particularly method actor. He was definitely in, in that sense. What's the word? Is it method when you actually like attach yourself to the outside of a plane <laughs> or actually climb a building? <laughs> like... That's a meth. <laughs> Not method, but meth. <laughs> Methy actor. There are some of us who would call that uninsurable. <laughs> I think he's that kind of actor. <laughs> we would call it a liability waiver <laughs> in the industry. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. You've been busted. You lost your qualifications as section leader three times. Put in hack twice by me. With a history of high-speed passes over five air-controlled towers and one admiral's daughter. Fanny Benjamin. And you, asshole, you're lucky to be here. Thank you, sir. And let's not bullshit, Maverick. Your family name ain't the best in the Navy. You need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guy. Now, what is it with you? Just want to serve my country. Be the best fighter pilot in Navy, sir. Don't screw around with me, Maverick. You're a hell of an instinctive pilot. Maybe too good. I'd like to bust your butt, but I can't. I got another problem here. I got to send somebody from this squadron to Miramar. I got to do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I gotta give you your dream shot. I'm gonna send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. Top Gun opened on May 16th, 1986. Reviews were mixed to mildly positive. A lot of praise for the filmmaking and very little praise for the story. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune said, No doubt about it, Top Gun is going to be the hit that the right stuff should have been. They are not in the same class of films, but this much must be said. The aerial sequences in Top Gun are as thrilling, while remaining coherent, as any ever put on film. David Anson of Newsweek had a slightly more negative take. He said, the likable Tom Cruise is simply miscast. He's not the dangerous guy everyone's talking about, but the boy next door. Nor, for all the erotic posing, is there any real spark between him and the more sophisticated McGillis. Cruise seems to think that if he stares at her hard enough, the chemistry will result. Reviewers were actually kind of indifferent to Cruise in this role, strangely. And when they did mention him, it was all sort of just about his looks and not really about his, like, charisma or star potential. And that was kind of true of the previous movies he'd been into. Is like, he didn't get a lot of early notices for, not even necessarily his performance, but just, like, as a presence in these movies. Which... <laughs> or, like, even engaging with the idea that he is acting in them. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, they were always very dismissive of him. The movie made about $180 million in the U.S., making it the number one film of the year, with Crocodile Dundee hot on its tail. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 357 worldwide. So obviously wow. a major hit. Um, it opened at number one, then went number one again in its fourth week, and then went number one again in its 19th week. Whoa. So did something happen? Did it win in the Oscar? Or like No, because did... I think that was like September. So I don't know. Like they might have like promoted it again like heavily. But oh. I feel like maybe just other summer movies took its place but then eventually like yeah. it was the summer movie that just people kept going back to wow top gun also caused a massive surge of interest in navy enlistment the air mm. force asked congress for 7.4 million dollars for leather jackets so they could keep up with the rise of interest in the navy important military spending there it's okay because military spending went way way down after that <laughs> All right, so let's talk about our Top Gun history. When did you first go Mach 2 with your hair on fire? I watched this movie with one of you, Seth or Chris. Do you not remember? Because I don't remember. 
Does anyone remember this? It was probably Seth then. Maybe you were living in New York. I do not remember watching this movie with you. Anyway, I watched it with one of you. (laughs) No one knows. Neither do I. But that was maybe like 10 years ago. And And that was your first time watching it? Yeah, that was was it. Wow. Okay. But I remember the commercials when it was going to be on TV and they would just play, I feel the need, the need for speed. And then they'd have like clips. (laughs) Top Gun, 8 p.m. on TBS. On on Channel 11. Uh, this is, Top Gun is absolutely one of the home-recorded VHS tapes that had my mom's handwriting on it. Top Gun was, at least for, like, my family and, like, for, for straight folks in the South, it was absolutely, like, it really was a blockbuster. And it was the kind of movie that was on, like, heavy, heavy rotation. It was definitely a movie people would rewatch, um, especially during summertime, like in like around Fourth of July. I know I never saw it in the theaters. I don't think I actually saw Top Gun for the first time until until relatively late in high school. But if it wasn't then, then it was like freshman year of college. And I'll I'll talk about this more in a bit when we kind of talk about our thoughts and feelings about the movie and the script and stuff. But I was lucky enough to take one of my first screenwriting classes at USC was from Jack Epps Jr. <laughs> and so I know that we studied that movie and watched it. I know we watched it as a class and then kind of like did our own rewatching of certain parts of it. And like we wrote an essay kind of just about like the script and story structure because that, that class was really just about the most kind of elemental basics of, of screenwriting and sequencing. So yeah, I, I didn't see it super early in life, but I did have the Top Gun game for the NES, <laughs> for the oh original God. Nintendo. What did that look like? Terrible. Not only were the mechanics of this game awful, because it was approximating a first-person view uh, on an 8-bit machine, but also, if anyone out there listening um, has made it past the first level, please write into the When We Were Young podcast and brag about your accomplishments, because I, young Seth Pearson, was medically, clinically, physically unable to beat the very first level of this fucking game. And it absolutely infuriated me because the the challenge at the end of the first level of this game was to land your jet on the aircraft carrier. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can just imagine little baby Seth (laughs) crashing an airplane (laughs) shortly, like just below the deck of a flight carrier or just straight down into the ocean, either one. Oh, that we're going to share that. That photo is going to be in our post um, because I guarantee, I guarantee you that there are people who played that game who never really gave a shit about the movie and vice versa. Um, but yeah, I my most abiding memory of Top Gun for most of my life until I was an adult was horribly failing at that game constantly. So you you weren't really cut out for <laughs> fighter <laughs> fighter school. Is what no, you're weirdly enough, I was not a first pick for Top Gun Academy. <laughs> shocking, shocking. Well, neither was I. <laughs> Although I did not have such proof as failing at a video game because I never played that video game. I had Top Gun on VHS. I feel like, again, it might have been a free, like a, a gift with purchase that I got somehow. I think that was with Rain Man, too. For some reason, I got 
a bunch of like Tom Cruise movies that I probably wouldn't have bought on my own. But so it became like part of my rotation. Not something I'd watch all the time. I, I might have done w- one Top Gun for every 10 twisters or something like that. I last watched it a few years ago at Dodger Stadium. It was playing on hmm. like their, you know, where they show people making out during baseball, um, whatever those screens are called. And the kiss cams? Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. Wait, you saw a movie at Dodger Stadium? Like, okay. Yeah. Not it- during a baseball game. <laughs> I guess maybe I think after because I think there was there was also a baseball game, but oh, I think it was playing oh. after the baseball game. This seems unlike you. <laughs> None of this story adds up. Not one bit of this seems believable, Chris. It was a group activity. <laughs> okay. Oh, that I did not organize myself. But yeah, I mean, this was a movie that I didn't really have any particular like. I liked it fine, but I didn't have strong feelings about it one way or another. And now. And now, have we lost that loving feeling? Should we take Top Gun to bed or lose it forever? I'll go. <laughs> Boy, was this movie boring. <laughs> really don't like this movie. I didn't like this movie when I saw it with one of you <laughs> 10 years ago. I remember being really bored. And then uh, it was the same deal this time around. I thought some of the flying shots were interesting to watch and it made me pine for the days of no CGI and we'll see with the sequel coming out but had this been made today probably be a lot of CGI and because Mm -hmm. it wasn't it was in the 80s no CGI actually had to fly the planes maybe some models but I thought that looked really cool everything story-wise I was offended by or bored by really hated this movie so mixed (laughs) That's interesting, Becky. I, I can totally understand your your overall impressions of it. I am of multiple thoughts about this movie. I think this movie is perfectly structured and mostly very well scripted. But like structure-wise, if you break it down into sequences and scenes, which I did for a class, <laughs> I think it's extremely well structured for the kind of movie that it is. I think there's basically no fat on those bones at all. I think the flight school element like provides a perfect kind of framing device to hang the rest of the story on. I think there is like barely just enough character work and drama to like keep the whole thing from being super episodic and boring. I don't think the whole movie is like super thrilling now necessarily. Um, I, I definitely think there's a lot of things about it that would just have been much more thrilling at the time. And also, obviously, it's very much a piece of Cold War propaganda, which, <laughs> it, yes, is also a point that I make about basically everything else we cover on this podcast, but it's true. She's all that, man. <laughs> yep. But I do think it's a super well-done movie, and I think especially the flying parts are super fucking fun. I was re-watching some of the movie today, and, and most of what I ended up re-watching were just the fight sequences, because I, I think they're insanely well-done, well-choreographed, especially well-edited. And and also, I mean, I actually really liked the character relationship between Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis. Like, I really liked the fact that she was a flight instructor, meaning that, like, she had power over him and over his character rather than the other way around um i liked the fact that she was older than him 
Like in all these movies like this, it's almost always the hot young male lead pursuing a much younger woman. And I really loved Kelly McGillis's performance in this movie. She does a whole lot just with like glances and looks. And there are other things I like and plenty of things I dislike, but that's kind of where I'm at overall. You talking about it being well-structured, is it just me or does the romance part just completely not exist in the last half of this movie? No, it's not. It it does exist. It it necessarily takes a back seat to the circumstances of the flight academy school and like the fact that they're like hurtling toward graduation and the fact that you know his his partner goose dies this is not an emotional drama like it's an action movie overall so just in terms of structuring i think it did a very good job at again just like putting only enough characterization on to make it somewhat hang together It just felt like the whole romance, they got together and then there was still like half the movie left. And I feel like it didn't work for me that that story of them getting together didn't last like the whole way through. But they don't just get together. Yeah, but it's only the first... She rejects him in a couple different ways and she, the whole time through, she struggles with the fact that she's attracted to him because she has like a rule about not dating her students. But that's over by halfway through the movie where she accepts that they're together Right. That, and That's then true. there's still half a movie left. But it's not like nothing else happens in that movie. Yeah, but then, <laughs> like, but she just, like, evaporates. Like, she's just like, okay, we solved that problem. Now let's go on to a new... It's like, here's chapter two of Top Gun. For me, it didn't feel well-structured. Does anyone want to guess if I like this movie or not? <laughs> I'm done guessing about you. Boy, oh boy. Mm, I think you half like it. I loved it. You love it? <laughs> <laughs> Loving it is, I mean, maybe a strong word, but I loved watching it. I loved the experience of Top Gunning again. Um, (laughs) Right from the beginning with the score, which I think is very iconic. It's perfect. Which is by Howard Faltermeyer, who also did the Beverly Hills Cop theme, which is also very really an iconic 80s. And then especially going into Danger Zone, I was just in like i was like yes like i was like oh god pretty much like dancing in my bed like watching this movie like i was like how could you not yeah it's if you were becky that's how you could not (laughs) guys this music doesn't stop throughout the whole movie it's just like endless score it was too much that's what it's like to be a fighter pilot too much it wouldn't stop blaring at me So it's, I mean, it's definitely like kitschy. The music is kitschy. Everything about this, I mean, everything about the 80s, this is such an 80s movie and everything about the 80s is kitschy. So loving it is, I don't want to say it's ironic, but I was just like so grateful to be in like a movie that was an original story, you know? I mean, yeah, it's like larger than life, but it's more or less a real world, like real types of people. And it was just like really fun to be in a movie that just could kind of happen, you know, and just like didn't need the stakes of the world to be yes the whole universe is not at stake in this movie (laughs) there are valid things to say about the characters and i think everything like critiques to be made but it is a character-based movie that is a lot about characters speaking to each other and talking and not just about there's a lot of like airplane chatter as well that none of us understand at all but what i appreciated about this surprisingly was the story and some of the characters and while i don't think all of it works 
Like, there aren't really scenes that, like, I'm like, that was an amazing scene. You know, I'm not, like, riveted by the human drama necessarily, but I'm very entertained moment to moment, especially by the characters and just the aesthetic of this movie. Like, it goes for it in a way that, like, you could never make this movie today because you just couldn't do it without being, like, ironic. And this is so earnest and cheesy in ways that... I just thought it was fun to see a movie that didn't hold back on any of that stuff and and it just had these moments that are just like wow you you did that like with like the the love scene or something with take my breath away like you could never ever do a, a love scene that's that earnest now but it was very earnest <laughs> it worked i <laughs> yeah. mean to me yeah, and Be- Becky, I-, I do think some of your, I think some of your negative reaction to it, I don't know, it feels like you're reacting against the 80s-ness of it. I don't know, I like plenty of 80s movies. I just didn't like this one. <laughs> <laughs> I just found it really boring. I didn't feel like there was any How tension. How can you be bored, I was bored in this fucking movie? I didn't like Tom Cruise ever in it. Like, yes, he's charming, but, like, his character, I did not like. I didn't like how he wooed Kelly McGillis. I didn't buy their relationship. I don't care about what happened to him because I didn't buy him or his relationship. I thought he was kind of an asshole the whole way through. Yes, he learns lessons and such. But, like, it just didn't feel earned. And it just, I just, he was, just like, smarmy to me. And that wasn't charming to me. Yeah, I mean, I think he's supposed to be smarmy. And what works about it to me is her and her character. Yeah. And how she is superior to him, but she's also clearly into him, like, early on. The Pentagon sees to it that I know more than you. Oh, ma'am, it doesn't seem so in this case now, does it? So, Lieutenant, where exactly were you? Well, we... Started up on his six when he pulled through the clouds, and then I moved in above him. Well, if you were directly above him, how could you see him? Because I was inverted. Wilson! <coughs> no, he was, man. It was a really great move. He was inverted. You were in a 4G inverted dive with a MiG-28? Yes, ma'am. I feel like they did the romance actually really well because I, th- I think so you too. see versions of this where it's like the woman is like too put off by him and there's a lot of like cliches where like the woman is in charge or like you know rebuffing the guy and it's just like over the top and then usually when she gives in it's like it feels fake and this feels like a real progression where like I really love the moment where she's like saying to Tom Cruise in the school while another student is watching she's saying oh I would never date a student like you're you're totally missing this but while she's doing that she's writing down her number and gives it to him so even while she's saying it she knows that she's not believing it and I just liked that playfulness with her like what works is that like this is Tom Cruise and it's like yeah I can buy that this woman would be into him absolutely and like I would would especially buy that she's into him knowing that it's a mistake for her to date him to me Kelly McGillis is the MVP of this movie like by far the whole world of all of these people ultimately revolves around her and the ways that she is able to like prick his little balloon so quickly and immediately and like does it constantly and that's part of what he's so into about her i loved that i loved their chemistry together i also really liked his chemistry with anthony edwards character goose like i really like a movie that has a platonic friendship between men it's not really a thing that gets depicted in a lot of movies especially not in a lot of action movies not very well i would say yeah Like, the one that feels believable, which I think it does. Like, a lot of times there's a lot of, like, banter between guys, and usually, like, the friend has to die. That's (laughs) a motivating thing. But it... 
this had a little bit more layers to it, where he meets, like, Goose's wife and knows her, and, like, there was more depth. Oh, what's her? Uh, Meg Ryan? Yeah. It's Meg Ryan. And, and yeah, I, like, for me, Goose's death did have a lot of weight, even though I saw it coming, even though I'd seen this movie a couple times before. Like, re-watching it this time, like, it did mean something that that guy died. And it also especially meant something, I, I think, to me, one of the closest things to a standout scene was the the scene where Maverick, Tom Cruise's character, is giving Anthony Edwards' wife, Meg Ryan, his personal belongings and stuff after he's died, and kind of, like, you know, handing off that stuff to her. And they kind of, like, both have to steel themselves against completely falling apart in tears with each other. Um, and I actually thought that was a really good acting moment for both of them. And and the way that that scene culminates is in her urging Tom Cruise's character, like, you know that Goose would have kept flying if you had died. Um, and he would have hated it, but he would have kept doing it. There's such an economy of storytelling, just in the fact that, like, it's both putting their mourning for that character and the kind of, like, impetus and motivation for him to keep going into that same one very brief scene in this movie. Um, but again, I think it's, for me, it was testament to the quality of the writing and the way that this movie's made that that I, I, I felt that, that that moment especially worked really well. And to me, that is kind of the turn that goes into the rest of this movie that, that isn't, sure, it isn't quite as Kelly McGillis-centric. <laughs> um, and I... I did miss her later on in the movie, but I felt like that was kind of a necessary handoff, and I think dramatically it did a good job of that. Guys, I just didn't care for this movie. (laughs) The story did not grab me, and I just found him unlikable in this movie, and I feel like those things, you need to be into them for this movie to work. This movie is very Tom Cruise-y. There's movies like Rain Man where I think he's an asshole, but he goes through this arc where I see it, and I believe it, and and I end up liking watching him and that character because they they go through something and I believe it. And in this, I felt I didn't feel like the relationship was earned. I didn't really feel like he changed much. Yeah, well, it's interesting you didn't like him because I find him so engaging, which isn't exactly liking him because there isn't a lot to his character and he doesn't do anything particularly like that like wins me over. But he just looks like he's having so much fun. And there's just something interesting about watching him, like, being so cocky. Like, I think that's what the story is about, is that he's someone who comes in feeling like he already is number one. But everyone comes into the school thinking they're number one. So it's all these, like, cocky assholes kind of competing with each other. And eventually he becomes more grounded because the stakes get raised when his friend dies. And suddenly it's not just about, like, being number one, like... And yeah, it's a it's a relatively thin story. I mean, I don't think that there's a lot there, but he just plays things very interestingly in this movie. I feel like he always just like has this like very knowing look as if he is like Tom Cruise. Like we, we were talking about earlier of just like before he even has earned being a star, he walks into this movie like he is a star and the character does that too. And I think that really works for this type of environment and character. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he is unabashedly, uh, not smarmy, but prickish. (laughs) A creep, an asshole. (laughs) He's not a creep. He's a creep in the pickup scene. I didn't think that held up, just hitting on a woman with, you lost that love and feeling? You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. 
You're trying hard not to show it, baby. But baby, believe me, I know it. You've lost that love and feeling. Oh, that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. And I was like, that's your pickup? And it's a thing that they've done previously because he says it to his friend and his friend's like, we're doing that. And then the whole bar is just like screaming, singing at this woman. And I guess like, to me, that's not, that's not charming. That's weird and creepy. But that's kind of how she reacts, which is why I liked it. Is like, it right. doesn't really work. Like she's <laughs> amused and she's sort of like, but I feel like she's acting the same way that you're saying. And she's like, really? Like this is it your It literally approach? does not work on her. <laughs> But then eventually they get together. I just felt like that was a weird, that was weird. And it it didn't feel realistic. He's aggressive. To me, it always felt like she was in control and it stopped it from feeling like it might have if she was just the bimbo gymnast or something like that. I'm glad she wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. I would hate that more. And knowing that she's going to end up being his instructor and have that sort of pull over him made it work to me. Because, like, she already knows that early on. Like, in the very first scene when he does this, she's like, she's looking forward to the moment the next day when she walks into class and he's like, oh, shit. Well, I didn't know she was going to be his, you know, that was, oh, really? it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a surprise for the audience. Yeah, I guess it is the first time you see it. So, yeah, I don't know. She just seems like so, she's having fun. Like, I yes. think that's it is like she's she seems to like it. And like a lot of movies, I feel like would play it where she's like, oh, get away from me. And like she kind of says things like that, but in a way where it doesn't seem like she really means it. So to me, like if she had really seemed like, oh, get away from me, like get out of the bathroom, like I'm not enjoying this, then it would have been an, a problem because she would have clearly been sending signals that she wasn't interested. But I feel like she was. She was enjoying it as much as he was and like it was just this kind of push-pull that they were both enjoying how long have you two been doing this act oh i don't know since uh puberty right puberty i'm charlotte blackwood i'm maverick maverick does your mother not like you or something no it's my call sign you're a pilot that's right a naval aviator no actually we've only done this uh twice oh how'd you do crashed and burned on the first one it wasn't pretty the second i don't know i'll tell you tomorrow but it's looking good so far (laughs) yeah it goes into their chemistry as characters but where i will agree with you is the chasing her to the bathroom thing is creepy as shit i audibly cringed when i watched it i was like what what are you doing why no you don't follow women into those all right i got one person to agree with me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it, it, it's it, and that is like a weird off-putting moment. I can understand why his character does it because he is irrepressible. But that was like one moment that I thought it was like it's just that doesn't that moment does not hold up for me. The you've lost the loving feeling thing. I absolutely immediately one hundred percent buy that as something that a young dumb full of cum airman would try to do to get a woman. Absolutely believe that. So one thing I knew about this movie before I saw it was that people think it's gay. <laughs> and I don't I didn't know <laughs> you why. Don't say. 
And then <laughs> as the movie first first there's some scenes where all the characters speak like five inches away from each other's faces. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is this why people think this movie's gay? Now and then Kias. And then the movie kept going and I was like, Oh no, it's the shirtless volleyball scene. Oh no, it's the naked men in towels. <laughs> <laughs> like like the examples of why people think this movie is gay just kept piling up. <laughs> Playing with the boys. <laughs> do, 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 do. What is the justification of the shirtless volleyball scene? Why um, it's in the movie? Becky, I'm sorry. Do you need a reason why Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise should be shirtless? I'm at just this curious. Point? I'm just curious. It was they were playing for the girls. I think is why they, they did the playing for the but with the boys. Within the world of the movie, is there any reason given? No. Is there no. any reason for that scene to exist? Do they talk about plot things in that scene? No. No. <laughs> No, it's not. No, and I, I think this was actually, like, really funny to Jack Epps that, like, in retrospect, many people see this movie as kind of a coded gay thing. And he's like, you know, I totally get it. <laughs> it it wasn't a thing that was present on any of our minds when we were making it, but... Yeah, yes. <laughs> I also, as I think everyone is aware of that kind of legacy of especially, like, Iceman and, and Maverick, a lot of people like to make fun of, Will like... they, won't they? yeah. <laughs> and so I was, like, coming into this, like, that's probably, like, overdone. And it's just... <laughs> it's not just that. It's everything in this movie. It is. And it's, it really like, it's is. almost so much and so obvious that it's not even funny to make fun of it or point it out because it's just there. It's not like, oh, I, I'm clever for, like, reading into this. It's like, nope, every scene. It's not subtext. It's text. <laughs> and it's not even just that. But it's, like, there is so much talk of butts and balls and <laughs> everything and it like from the get-go i feel like the subtext of every line is like testicles like my testicles are bigger than your testicles oh and- yeah you want to know who the best is that's him ice man it's the way he flies ice cold no mistakes just wears you down you get bored frustrated do something stupid and he's got you hey hey slider thought you wanted to be a pilot man what happened you're such a dickhead. Whose butt did you kiss to get in here? Huh? Well, the list is long, but distinguished. Yeah, well, so's my Johnson. You know what movie I like more than this that reminds, like, this, it would be a double feature, is Roadhouse. Yeah. <laughs> and in Roadhouse, which is a movie maybe we should do on the podcast. We absolutely um, need to do that on There's a lot of Swayze butt. <laughs> There's lots so of Swayze chest, lots of Swayze butt, probably some other people's butts, but all only men. Yes. <laughs> and that movie, even though there's a female love interest, like a very gay movie. That's <laughs> like, a, yeah, that's a movie about men's butts. Yeah. And it re- really is. I had more fun watching that movie, but that's another episode. But it reminded me of that because it was just like, I wonder if the producers were like, let's get those women in there. Like this movie's about fighting in bars. So we need to have those butts for women to get to the theater. Well, and one thing I remember. <laughs> I remember, I think this was around the time when, like, the idea of a four-quadrant movie was, like, first coming up through the studio system and was, like, first kind of a thing that they were pressing for. And it really was that they, like, wanted more moments that would keep women's attention if they went to go see this movie. <laughs> and they didn't, I don't, I don't think they, like, coded, like, the fight sequences as something only men would enjoy, but it was kind of like a counterbalance, counterweight to that. Well, that'll just about cover the flybys. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's just really funny, like, the, how, again, earnest the dialogue is. I think we have to shout out James Tolkien, who's the sweaty cigar-chomping commander in the early scenes. Is Absolutely. He, um, is he the principal from Back to the Future? Yes, he is the principal from Back to the Future, and there's a scene where he is much shorter than Tom Cruise, and I was like, is he shorter than Tom Cruise? How, how tall is this actor? <laughs> Crazy. He and everyone at that point is so sweaty. Like, they are just covered. They're glistening. It is ridiculous. But, like, I just, like, luxuriated in all of these choices that I were just it. so, like, dripping with sweat. Like, just so aggressive. Just, like, calling out, like, your butt is mine. But, like, in, without <laughs> any irony or and self-awareness. Not even your ass is mine, your butt is mine. <laughs> yes, much more butt than ass. It's a lot more butt than ass. <laughs> was this PG-13? PG. PG. Was yeah. Big. Can't say ass. You can't say... You can say ass a couple times, You can but have you a love scene. You can't load your movie up with ass. <laughs> I also... I have to say, I, I did also really enjoy Val Kilmer in this movie. Like, he plays that menacing, kind of shitheady role so well. And I liked... The chemistry between his character and Tom Cruise's character. You! You are still dangerous. You can be my wingman anytime. Bullshit. You can be mine. He looked like a porcupine. Like a porcupine I want to fuck. His hair is very stick up straight. Pilf. He's a pilf. I think what works about him is that he's mostly, like, right. And instead of just being an asshole for being an asshole's sake to, like, have a villain in the movie, he is right about what he says about Tom Cruise, that he's not thinking about other people. He's only in it for himself. I just kept waiting for a moment where he did something that was unreasonable, and he doesn't. He doesn't! He's actually completely right and probably is a probably a better like leader than Tom Cruise would be. Yeah. And so I appreciate it. Like there were just things about the writing like that that I feel like there's a lot of scripts that are now based on this kind of Top Gun formula and then you see a bully who's just like a bully for being a bully and a girl like a woman who's like standoffish because she can be and like who's both standoffish and then a total pushover. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. And I just feel like this had little threads of those tropes but didn't do any of them in such a way and like none of the instructors are like a total like they they all feel like people who are ultimately like looking out for their students you know no one's just being an asshole because they're a hard ass like instructor who enjoys torturing people it's like it all feels relatively real to me like for as heightened as like the aesthetic obviously is I think this would have been a really great movie to work on because you only have to work from 6 45 p.m to 7 15 p.m every day (laughs) What? During magic hour. Yes. (laughs) Because every scene (laughs) takes place at sunset. Yeah, but then it takes five years to film. (laughs) Yeah, but... That was another thing I wanted to touch on, which is like, I'm sure Tony Scott showed plenty of his style in that one commercial he shot before this. (laughs) Um... But this movie is so fucking iconically Tony Scott looking. And Tony Scott's visual style became the hallmark emblem of his work as a filmmaker. I think Michael Bay was taking notes when he saw this movie. Oh, Michael. I feel like Michael Bay's whole career ripped off 
parts of this movie to greater or lesser success. Yeah. But yeah, and and, and again, it's like it's sure it's an action movie, but also it's it's a beautifully shot movie to watch. And I really do think that like Tony Scott's vision as like a craftsman was really on display in this. Yeah, I mean it it just captures that like beachiness, like sunset thing, like to a like absurd degree in ways <laughs> where it's like he Tom Cruise shows up for dinner at Kelly McGillis's house. They have dinner, drink some wine, flirt a lot, and then he leaves, and it's the exact same sunset when he's leaving. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. D- either they did all that in five minutes, or this is just the land of perpetual sunset. I think that may I'm have confused with. me. <laughs> I was like, what? How long was he there? <laughs> I feel like this movie's real legacy is its soundtrack. Yeah. Because every song, I, mean, I was like, there. oh, yeah. there's that There's that song. Oh, oh there's absolutely. that song. It's a perfect movie soundtrack at least like the big songs i have actually listened to this soundtrack pretty much in full for the past couple of weeks (laughs) because it is fun to drive around to danger zone absolutely um it's just true take my breath away is a great really romantic good song and i really like actually the love scene like even though this is a term that should be retired but that is a love making scene like if ever if ever there was something that is love making that's what that is this is really true and honestly this i noted it because this is one of few tom cruise sex scenes that i remember seeing Um, there's one jerry Maguire though it is and we'll get to that one there's two of jerry Maguire. yeah there are a couple in jerry Maguire. but like in this it is earnestly tender in a way that almost no sex scenes are now (laughs) ever i mean because ever were (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it just, I mean, it's definitely very stylized. It's very music video-like. It basically is a music video because there's music playing, but it's like, you can see them, they're like tongues, like. Yeah, that was kind of, I didn't need (laughs) to say that. I thought it was like hot. I thought it was hot. I didn't need to say that. (laughs) Honestly, I was surprised at how believable that was to me. And and again, it was like, that was actually one moment that I was like, okay, no, I totally get why these people are so hot for each other that they'd make stupid mistakes because of it. Yeah, it, it did feel surprisingly real for how like like obviously like heightened it is with the music and the silhouette the michael mann-ish lighting (laughs) but they had chemistry especially in that moment it felt like they were really enjoying themselves (laughs) like i believed it in a way that i rarely do especially with a sex scene that's i mean this was still pretty tame like they're not showing like a lot of nudity or anything like that so for one of those types of like more romantic sex scenes versus like a sexy sex scene you know like more adult oriented i can't Think of very many that work as well as this one. Yeah. Yeah, my only other note was that I thought Meg Ryan and Anthony Edwards were a really, really cute couple, and I wish there had been more time spent with them. But that's not, like, a huge criticism, because, again, it's not their movie. Surprised Meg Ryan was in this. I didn't know. I was, too. I had totally forgotten. Remember when she was cute as a button? Oh, my God. She's so cute. And I I love them together. I like their their little kid who they're, like, singing Great Balls of Fire with. I like the moment where she and Kelly McGillis get to talk. Bechdel test, it passes. <laughs> that one scene. Yeah. Wait, but they're talking about they Tom Cruise. About <laughs> they literally oh. fail the Bechdel test. All right. Well, they almost passed. <laughs> yeah. They got closer than you ever would have thought Top Gun would get. <laughs> they flew closer to it than you would expect. I do think that the goose death, that part works, but it, go, it to me, the movie kind of like loses a little steam at that point. It goes on a little bit too long, becomes a little bit too melodramatic. Like, I'm into this movie when it's fun and either sexy or like cool but not as much when it's trying to be dramatic yeah and and i i will totally agree with becky i thought the dog tag tossing scene was a cheesy moment that didn't really didn't really have any dramatic heft to me like i feel like his interactions with the other characters in real time are what dramatically
actually grounds the movie, and I don't think that that symbol of the dog tags really had any weight. Yeah, just the symbol. Yeah. It's like you can still honor your friend and like have his dog tags. And it and it very much weird. felt like that was a moment that got studio noted in where there yeah. some development exec was like, okay, well, but he has to have like the big dramatic flourish moment where he does the dramatic action. Yeah. And it's like, no, not really. <laughs> the movie tells that story just fine. Yeah, I agree with you. That was a kind of weak spot. And Chris, I think you're right that once it gets to that point, the, the movie does lose a little bit of its steam, especially because it's taking two of its cylinders out of the engine or I don't know what metaphors I'm using at this point, but... Well, Anthony Edwards was just not sexy enough to survive this movie. They needed to get rid of him. I thought he was cute in this movie. He was He was no Tom Cruise slash Val Kilmer slash... No one was. I mean, my all God. All those other just, people. I, we should just post photos of the glistening bodies of those... They're so fucking hot in this movie. <laughs> They're so fucking hot. Tom, how is Tom Cruise so hot in this movie? It's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> Did not think that you would be such a big Tom Cruise fan. I didn't either. No, I didn't neither. either. I'm in the danger zone now. The other thing that I don't think worked about this movie is the an- anonymity of the bad guys who are never even named, mm-hmm. which was which is done intentionally because I just don't think they wanted to go there. But I mean, I, I think it's implied that they're Russians, right? But it makes it feel very like video gamey. Like there's no stakes to the fact that like there are other people in those other planes. Yeah. And I think that's contributed to me not caring about being invested in the story, like because I didn't see who those people were. I didn't know anything about them. And you also don't know, like, it's like, we must do military things to protect military things. It's, there's no, like, oh, this mission is because, like, they have a plot to do this. You know, it's just, there are some planes with those guys we don't like. We better take them out. And literally, the literal line is, like, we know that we're not at war currently, but we must act and train as if we always are. And I'm like, well, fast forward, like, 15 or 20 years, and you will be at war constantly. So this is a preview. And it's just confusing, because it's like, their planes aren't, like, marked, like, with, you know, like, a red Russian flag or whatever it right. would be, which, you know, maybe is realistic. But it's just, it's not clear, like, who's a bad guy, who's a good guy. Like, it Yeah. It just becomes, it, like, it... It just feels oddly like a training exercise the whole time, even when it's real. Okay, so a couple things on that. One, the term MIG is the Russian fighter Uh. jet name. It's like their model instead of like an F-14, it's a MIG. And that is necessary context for the movie that the three of us don't really have because we were born into the very end of the Cold War. And it feels to me that like for most of the audiences who saw this movie when it first came out, that kind of context for it was immediate and there and they didn't need any extra information or background or exposition given to know that the Russians were the bad guys. That makes sense, yeah. I guess in general, I do appreciate that the dialogue just goes for it and doesn't spend a lot of time like trying to like educate us about what all this means. But that is something that I wasn't aware of, so it probably would have been helpful to well, <laughs> at least have and some I do context. Think, I do think, Chris, you're exactly right in that like the the tone of this movie is overall so playful and is so escapist in its found all of its foundational elements. Given a lot more backstory, I feel like that could have like weighted the tone of it down. Is this funny or problematic? The fact that the one black fighter pilot's call name is Sundown. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Think the answer about to it. your multiple choice question is yes. <laughs> Sundown. 
throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of our podcast. <laughs> Listeners can't see the 10-foot pole that I'm currently holding between me and my podcast co-hosts. <laughs> Just had to throw that out there. All right, didn't mean to... <laughs> Just going to throw that bomb and walk away? Okay, Becky Bain. Fuck, Mary kill. <laughs> Danger zone, take my breath away, and you've lost that love and feeling. Oh, I thought you were going to pick, like, three Ooh. planes. <laughs> Kill, you've lost that love and feeling. Mm, fuck danger zone. Fuck danger zone. I'm going to, you're going to fuck danger yeah, zone. Mary, the danger zone away. is for fucking I him. like that song. So. Going to marry, take my breath away. It's a beautiful song. And it's also so 80s, but it's also just a beautiful song. And absolutely kill, you've lost that love and feeling. I have always hated that song. Hey, it's a, and it's, is it a Motown yeah. So, yeah. I feel like it's like a Motown classic, and I love 99.9% of the songs that came out of that musical era. Um, I cherish them. I think they're some of the best songs ever written. I've never liked that song. So, <laughs> I would fuck Take My Breath Away. <laughs> Interesting. Very slow and backlit. Yes, I Very would. Berlin. Very you wouldn't fuck, you would make love to. I would make love. Make love, Mary Kill. <laughs> So I guess I would marry Danger Zone, because I feel like I could get on board with that every day. You could build a life with Danger Zone, too. Yeah. You could. And I, I agree. You gotta kill. You've lost that love and feeling. Oh, so that's like Sweet Caroline. Just get that song yeah. should go song. away. You got brass, man. I'll give you that. You want my game? You couldn't deal with my game, Jack. You're outmanned. Let's find out. I'm asking you. I ain't got a leg to stand on, but I'm asking you. Shut it! Don't do that, kid. I call the shots. I do what I want to do. Don't do it. I don't have that many games left in me. God, you used us! You used me! Yes, I did. 1986 also brought The Color of Money, which was another big hit for Tom Cruise. It made more than Taxi Driver and Raging Bull combined. Whoa. Whoa! It was a Scorsese movie. It was. It got four Oscar nominations and was a sequel to 1961's The Hustler, which starred Paul Newman as a hotshot pool player. And in this one, Newman is sort of the mentor figure and Tom Cruise is the hotshot pool player. And I think this movie is very interesting because Tom Cruise is, in the 80s, like what Paul Newman was in the 60s. So it was like a cool bit of casting. I think it's easy to forget that Tom Cruise was in a Scorsese movie, but I liked like learning that this movie was in the same year as Top Gun too, especially as- That's crazy to me. You see him doing like this big, like defining action movie, but also like still doing like a pretty serious like adult drama that was like an Oscar movie. Obviously we're going to talk about another year where he did, you know, two movies like in the same kind of vein in 1996. Um did you guys ever see The Color of Money? I saw one clip you showed me. <laughs> Didn't even know he was in a Scorsese movie. I saw the same one clip you showed me <laughs> and I had every intention of watching it before this and did not. It's in cuz it was shot after this movie but Tom Cruise looks so like a little collegey kind of kid which he i mean he still was like 23 he looked like a little twink in that clip like to be he looked like a kid in that clip it was very surprising he's wearing a t-shirt with his own name on it vince not tom cruise but his (laughs) character's name but um it's a fun movie and i think it's unjustly forgotten in the tom cruise canon so i would recommend people watch the color of money especially if you watch the hustler first and or have already seen the hustler it's a really well done sequel and it's what all movies do now which is have like the original cast member from 20 years ago and like Mm. reboot the movie but like like, creed or something yeah yeah like but scorsese did it first so 
Now, see, what was really most surprising to me is I know Paul Newman as a maker of organic salad dressings and snacks, <laughs> and turned out he was an actor. In I his spare time. Was, yeah, in, in his spare, spare time. time. From his salad dressing empire. <laughs> the color of ranch. <laughs> it's white. <laughs> Spoiler. I'd go with more of a taupe. Taupe. Around this time, Tom Cruise rather famously turned down Top Gun 2, even though he was offered five times his salary. Because he didn't want to do sequels. He didn't want to be the sequel Mm. guy, the action movie guy. (laughs) But it is now 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Top Gun Maverick will be coming out on May 27th, 2022. Supposed to come out right now, which is why we did this episode right now. (laughs) Um, Before that, it was supposed to come out July 19th, 2019. When the, like, Lion King remake came out and Spider-Man Far From Home. what happened then? That was pre-COVID. Yeah, it was just delayed, I guess. It was supposed to come out a whole Spider-Man ago. Like... (laughs) So, it is late and... That's that's concerning about the overall quality of that motion picture. Wow. You don't think that they made it because they had a great story? Continuation (laughs) of the characters? Well... Your cynicism, Becky. Wow. (laughs) Cruz is returning along with Val Kilmer. Uh, Added to the cast are Jennifer Connelly, Miles Teller, as Bradley Rooster Bradshaw, son of Goose. Oh, no. And John Hamm as Vice Admiral Cyclone. Okay, I'm there. I'm there. (laughs) I was not fully important until you said John Hamm. (laughs) Ed Harris's character apparently is named Rear Admiral. (laughs) So that's a that's a position, Chris. That's a yeah. really good position. Well, but that's what he's cre- I'm credited as. I mean, I didn't mean that was his like Christian name. <laughs> oh, <laughs> now I'm disappointed. Meg Ryan has been replaced, and Kelly McGillis was not asked back. That is like bullshit. Yeah, I mean, for as much fun as I think Top Gun is, I am not eager to see another. I mean, I'm curious to see what they do with it, but I don't have high hopes for it. I don't hold any particular excitement for seeing a sequel to this movie. I don't know much what much more there is to say. Like, okay, he, I trust Tom Cruise in the fact that I don't think he ever sets out to make something forgettable or throwaway. It often happens, like movies like Night and Day. But I feel like he tries. <laughs> so I feel like if he puts his name attached, he attaches his name to something, and he's producing it, which I'm assuming he's doing because I think he produces everything he stars in i feel like it's not going to be a piece of shit (laughs) um but it may for me may not just be it might not be very good but i for me like i think of the independence day sequel and how that just seems like a complete money grab with no thought behind it and i feel like i do trust him enough that i feel like he would want some thought yeah i'd say that that's that's right on i trust him to hopefully do better like special effects than a lot of these movies might do like like or even not even special effects but stunts mm-hmm. yeah so i stunts. hope they real fly things. the fucking planes like it if that's if they flew fucking planes for that movie then it might be worth seeing he's a <laughs> pilot right like he oh, yeah. has his own planes oh, yeah. and shit yeah so we'll see <laughs> also you talking about him not wanting to be a sequel guy and there've been like seven mission impossible oh yeah <laughs> So on our next episode, we'll continue cruising on our way to 1996 and talking a little bit about Mission Impossible and then mostly about Jerry Maguire. And that's all the speed we have need for in this episode of When We Were Young. 
The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product, and leave us a rating and a review so more people hear the show. Also, you can contribute to us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash young so that we can make more episodes of this fine audio broadcast. I've been Seth, a.k.a. Overthinker. Fort here, over and out. I want somebody's butt. I want it now. I've had it. I want some butts. (laughs) 